Amen. Well, as Nathan's mentioned a couple of times, I invite you to open your Bible to the New Testament book of Titus. Titus chapter 2, just find a bunch of the T books, Thessalonians, Titus, uh, Timothy and Titus. Um, it's kind of right in the middle of your New Testament. So the back half of the Bible, about the middle of that back half, you'll find the book of Titus. And please find chapter 2 and also try to locate your heart. Uh, not the physical one, but the spiritual one. Try to find it. Try to, try to put your spiritual hands around your spiritual heart and just take your spiritual heart in your spiritual hands and hand it fully, 100%, to God. If you do that, today's passage will be obeyed beautifully in our lives. Today's passage is about you and God Absolutely. It's about how to honor him, how to obey him. But it's also interwoven, interconnected. The fabric of your life, the little thread of your life is to be woven in relationships with the lives of other people who know God. And together you more robustly glorify him. So it's about your behavior, your life, your obedience to God, but it's also about your relationships with other children of God, particularly in a local church. So that's what we're talking about today. I think you'll see those themes as we walk through Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Before I read the passage, let me just tell you the big idea is in verse 1. And then there are four or five applications in verses 2 to 10, depending on how you count them, draw your attention to Titus chapter 2, verse 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard translation, tune your heart to the voice of God. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Verse three, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Verse 6, likewise urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Verse 9, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Join me once again as we pray for the Lord's help. Father, it would be a tremendous blessing to every person here if you would help us understand what these 10 verses are saying. And it would be even better if you would fill us with the Holy Spirit to live obediently to them. So we ask for both of those supernatural blessings. We can see the words and we've read the words but we ask that you would cause us to understand them. And we ask for that for a reason, so that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to obey what you've said. Dislodge our rebellion. Dislodge our disobedience. Forgive us for believing the lie that we cannot live in light of your truth. You are God and you are able. Fill us now with the Holy Spirit to glorify your son.
by honoring you through walking in obedience to what this passage says. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I mentioned right before the reading that verse 1 is the big point. Beneath that, we have a number of subpoints, and they're just application. So one main point, verse 1, four subpoints, but one of the subpoints has a subpoint. So one big point, four subpoints, number two subpoint has a subpoint. That's the outline. One point, verse 1, is telling the pastor or pastors what to do. All the subpoints are telling all of us Christians what to do with what the pastor does. The title of the sermon is Gospel-Shaped Relationships in the Church. Last week, we looked at reproving the rebels at the end of chapter 1. That passage taught us how to spot people, how to identify people that are in opposition to God. They are opponents to the gospel in the church. How do we recognize them? What do we do with them? The week prior to that, we looked at the qualifications of character for those who are to serve as pastors. So putting the last two weeks together with this week, we've been seeing some vitally important relationships in the body of Christ. Two weeks ago, elders, their qualification, their job description. They are to be men of this character and they are to do two things. Exhort in sound doctrine, teach good Bible stuff and rebuke those who deny good Bible stuff. Teach sound doctrine, rebuke those who teach bad doctrine. That's what pastors are to do. Then last week, we looked at the opponents to God and to his people that need to be severely rebuked. That's what the passage says. They need to be silenced. This week, it's for all Christians who are to live in light of God's truth, literally saturated with truth. That's our first point. That's the only main point. It's verse 1. It's that pastors are to tell the church how God's truth impacts the lives of his people. Another way to say it, truth-saturated living. That's our first point. So if we connect this passage to last week's passage, which we should do, it's appropriate to understand that while this principle, verse 1, absolutely applies to everybody in the church in a broad sense, speak true things about God on the basis of his word, in context, the command is directed to the pastors. Look at verse 1 again. But as for you, that's singular, Pastor Titus, speak, that's a command, it's an imperative, as for you, Titus, say things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Do you see that he's not saying, say sound doctrine? He's already said that. He's saying, tell the people what it looks like to live in light of sound doctrine. What are the things that fit, that accord with good Bible truth, with sound doctrine? God will hold the pastors responsible for the diet that the church is fed. Give them sound doctrine. And the blame for so much malnourishment among Christians is going to be laid at the doorstep of pastors who didn't feed the church God's word. James 3.1 is unequivocally clear that those who teach will incur a stricter judgment. And instead of feeding Christ's sheep with the healthy nourishment of God's word, so many so-called pastors fleece the sheep. Instead of trying to get Christ into the people and good Bible doctrine is the rock beneath our feet that we stand on to live faithfully for the Lord come what may, many pastors live in selfish gain and try to get something from the people. So the first point is tell the people what accords with the truth of God. 
Tell the people what fits with sound doctrine. Tell them how their life is to be brought into accord with the word of God. I mentioned this verse as a command. If any pastor wants to be faithful to the gospel, that's the big title of our sermon series, Faithful to the Gospel. That's what First and Second Timothy and Titus are all about. If any pastor wants to be faithful to the gospel, we've got to do two things. A, tell people what is true, sound doctrine, verse 1. And B, how God's truth ought to impact our practical living, what is fitting for sound doctrine. The ESV says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The NIV, teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. New Revised Standard, teach what is consistent with sound doctrine. Christian Standard Bible, proclaim the things that are consistent with sound doctrine. Do you see, he's not just saying say true stuff, but tell the people this is how you live in light of what is true. Paul uses that same word for fitting in Ephesians 5 in a negative way. Immorality, impurity, greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Those things, being immoral, being impure, being greedy, that's not proper. That's not fitting with God's truth. So this word carries the weight of moral judgment. So one of the pastor's jobs is to tell people what faithful to the gospel, big banner of our series, what faithful to the gospel living looks like. So the command in verse 1 is not preach true things. That's implied. But the command is to say to the people how our living in light of God's truth ought to match our claim to believe God's truth. So, hopefully I've set the stage well. How should God's truth impact the lives of God's people? That's the rest of the sermon. When pastors obey verse 1, verses 2 to 10 ought to happen in the church. That's the four or five subpoints, however you want to measure them, in verses 2 to 10. They're all application. Main point, tell people how to live in light of God's truth. All right, I'm about to do that. Nobody gets to escape the bullseye. If you're young or old, you're in the passage. If you're male or female, you're in the passage. If you're married or single, you're in the passage. If you're in authority or under authority, you're in the passage. So I'm about to tell you what God thinks our life ought to look like in light of his truth. This is what sound doctrine ought to do to us. Verse 2, older men. Verse 3, older women. Verse 4 and 5, younger women. Verse 6 to 8, younger men. And verse 9 and 10, those under authority or slaves. First, verse 2. What does truth-saturated living look like for older men? Look at verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, Dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older men. So if you're wondering if you're old, you probably are. There's four characteristics that should mark your life. They're in verse 2. The fourth characteristic has three qualifiers. So what are four things that ought to show up in the life of older godly men in the church? Is this true of you? The first thing, verse 2, is to be temperate. The ESV says sober-minded. Almost all the times that word is used in the New Testament, it's accompanied by relationship to alcohol. Be temperate in your use of alcohol. Don't abuse alcohol. Temperance is where we get our word from this word, temperate. In the New Testament, because it's commonly in relationship to alcohol, it'll help us to understand, because it's not connected to alcohol in this passage, what Paul's talking about. Older men should be told, verse 1, that they should be sober in all of their life. 
That's what it looks like to live saturated with God's truth. So, brothers, are you level-headed? Are you quick-tempered? Do you have a short fuse? When somebody puts their grubby hands on your idols, do you blow up at them? Are you given to being irrational? Are you impulsive? Or positively, are you because of the truth of God, good doctrine, verse one, does your life look like it's measured, deliberate, because you want to do your best to live in accord with the truth of God's word. The way this man lives his life, this older man in verse two, actually earns the respect of younger Christian men in the church. Younger Christians look at these older Christian men and these younger brothers say, ah, that's what it looks like. God said that, I can quote the verse but I'm actually looking at a man who does it. Temperate. Number two, dignified. Older men should be dignified. The NIV puts that word in verse two, worthy of respect. That's why I literally just said, a temperate man earns the respect of younger Christian men in the church. Worthy of respect. That's what dignified means. In 1 Timothy 3, all deacons are required to have this quality. 1 Timothy 3, 8, dignified. This means he does not demand respect from other people, but he's earned it. By his Christ-like character, men of godly dignity are like a lighthouse in a sin-dark, storm-tossed world. And as young men are being tempted to be thrown around by the chaos of all their peers and what they love, they're able to look at this man like a lighthouse in that sin-dark world and say, oh, that's the direction I want to go. Churches should be full of older men like that because God's truth saturates our lives. We're good guides and good examples. Number three, sensible. That's also in verse two. Older men are to be sensible. ESV says self-controlled. This includes the quality of a man who lives with a bit and a bridle in the mouth of his passions. Sensible means he steers his senses. They do not steer him. His passions motivate him to go Godward when they're enraged and provoked. They don't steer which way he goes. They don't take him sinward. He takes them Godward. And then finally, number four, verse two says he's sound. He's sound in three specific ways, faith, love, and perseverance. But what he looks like is soundness. This is the same word that's used in last week's sermon, verse 13 of chapter one where we're told that rebels to the gospel must be reproved severely so that they will be sound in the faith. That's also faith, the first qualifier Paul gives to this being sound. Do you see it? Verse two, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in perseverance. It's really one conglomeration, not three separate things. It's faithfulness which is full of love and steadfastness. One commentary said, the older man should manifest a healthy trust in God. That's faith. That is accompanied with love toward others and a hopeful perseverance and endurance toward God. So older brothers, this is what it looks like to be saturated with good Bible truth good sound doctrine, verse one. So does your life, brothers, look temperate, dignified, sensible, and sound? What about God's truth saturating older sisters? That's verse three. Look at verse three. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. 
So Christian sisters, like I just said to the brothers, if you're wondering if you're an older woman, the answer is probably yes. And I want to say something to you that is what you can already anticipate. At least I trust you can. While the culture's telling you not to embrace your age, and it's culturally inappropriate to even ask somebody over approximately 20, how old are you, if she's female, I want to say to you that the Bible encourages you to boldly wear your aging as a badge of honor. Godly women who have walked with Jesus for decades are more beautiful at 80 years old than they are at 18 years old. Don't try to revert. Embrace the beauty of godly womanhood, including being old. Paul just says, old women. And then he says, when God's truth saturates your life, the pastor's job, verse one, is to tell you what that's supposed to look like. So I'm about to tell you what a truth-saturated older woman looks like. Four things. Number one, reverent in their behavior. Do you see that in verse three? Literal translation. That which befits a holy person. Several commentaries connected this description, reverent behavior, to the priestess in a temple. That means she's living all of her life as an act of worship to Jesus. Her behavior, literally the way she acts, is reverential toward God. She acts Godwardly. She lives reverently. There's no irreverent aspect of the way she carries herself. She's Godward. All of her life is worship. Number two, verse three, not malicious gossips. The word is in the Greek, one you can hear and understand without me even translate it. Diabolus, diabolical. She doesn't use her tongue devilishly. She's not a malicious gossip. What's the, what's the enemy's job description in the Bible? Satan's name is accuser of the brethren. Apparently sisters, brothers are not immune. Brothers are not immune to this sin. But because of the propensity of this application to sisters in Christ in Scripture, apparently there's a more subtle temptation upon you to be gossipy, to use your tongue to tear people down rather than build them up, to share a not-so-sanctified prayer request which is, literally, uh, which is really slandering somebody else. New International Greek Testament commentary said about that, concern for other people in the church can degenerate into this vice. Be on the, the alert about this, sisters. This means that hearing good doctrine, verse one, should bring a steady reminder to older ladies that you must be godly in your speech. Number three, not only reverent, Godward in all of your life, not also, number two, not being maliciously gossipy, but number three, God's truth saturating our sisters' lives looks like they are not enslaved to much wine. We're going to have a meal after church today. That's been happening in churches since the Bible was written. In 1 Corinthians, at their grace lunch, folks were getting drunk. 1 Corinthians 11.20, they literally were getting drunk at church. Go read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty 20 sometime. Paul's telling the sisters, do not be enslaved to much wine. If people can get wasted at the table of the Lord, then you can absolutely sinfully justify drinking too much anywhere. Do you see that if the church at Corinth was letting people get drunk at the Lord's Supper, 
then Christian people can justify too much wine anywhere. Sisters, Jesus did not turn water to wine at a funeral. He turned water to wine at a wedding. Celebrating the good work of God rather than drowning your sorrows or relieving your stress is a healthy grid for how to use alcohol in moderation if you're not a teetotaler, which is also a very good option. Older, godly women are satisfied with the sufficiency of Christ. Therefore, they do not yield to anything else that would numb their sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. They're intoxicated with Jesus. Number four, finally, older women are to teach what is good. Do you see that in verse three? Teaching what is good. We've all been around sisters in the Lord like this. This church is so shaped by women like this. This is sisters in the Lord whose walk with Jesus has become a repository for good things. They're able to pull from the treasury of a long, intimate walk with Jesus over decades and place those gold, rubies, and precious stones right into the hands of other people in the church particularly younger ladies. As I was thinking about this passage, I just thought of so many examples. I'm going to share one outside the church so as not to embarrass anybody without their permission, though it would be a good example. Our pastors and their wives earlier this year sat in our church office with our dear friends from the UK, David and Mary Tucker, dear old David Tucker, you remember him? And Mary, after dinner, opened a little notebook about this size and flipped through about 30 pages of handwritten notes as she shared about 20 minutes with the pastors and their wives, but particularly toward our wives. And in 20 minutes, she gave about 200 years worth of gold, of Christ and his sufficiency and his goodness. She didn't come up with that talk the day she sat down and wrote those notes. That was a lifetime of intimacy with Jesus handed to us in a 20-minute package. Older sisters, teach what is good. Take from the treasury of the riches of Christ and hand those gold rubies and precious stones to younger sisters in the faith in the church. What a gift. But there's also a reason older sisters must embrace these fourfold, truth-saturated frame of living. Reverent behavior, not malicious gossips, not addicted to much wine, teaching what is good. Why? Verse 4 and 5. This is the sub-point. So there's four applications. This is a sub-application of number two. Do you see that younger sisters are not listed by themselves, but they're a derivative category of the older sisters? Do you see that in verse four? So that they may encourage the young women. Derivative doctrinal living for younger women. How do young Christian ladies become more godly? One of God's main answers is giving them older sisters in the church. This is the first of four so that statements in the first 10 verses of chapter two. So that, older women, so that they may encourage the young women. There's three more so that's coming before verse 10. Here we learn that God wants older Christian women, here's his word, to encourage the young women. The ESV says, so train the young women. Train them. Like put them in school. Help them. Encourage them. The implication of this verse is clear. What does this verse assume? Well, among other things, it's not written in the words. But you can't understand the words without this background implication. This verse assumes 
that people will be devoted to one local church for a very long time because this is the stuff about Christianity you can't get out of a book. In fact, younger women can read this passage, totally understand what it's saying, the logic of all the relationships, and still not be able to see it unless they have older sisters in their life who are doing it. This passage says that we need our brothers and our sisters, particularly younger sisters need older sisters. Why? So that they can show you what it looks like. ESV literally says train you. New American Standard says encourage you. This is another beautiful emphasis of the caught aspect of Christianity. One of the great weaknesses of the American church and maybe Grace Church is that too many people often look for a church where everybody's just like them. Everybody the same age, everybody the same income, everybody the same hobbies. I hope you have a lot of Christian friends like that. There's nothing at all wrong with that. We literally just got out of a class where we had kids, teenagers, and adults. Awesome. Those people are going to have a huge impact on your life. If they love Jesus, they're going to have a good, huge impact on your life. But don't forget, young ladies, to look for godly older ladies who are not your age. But this passage puts the weight on the older ladies to look for the younger ladies. Don't close your eyes, sisters, to the rich opportunity right in front of you to make disciples of the next generation of sisters in this church. So I have the joy of being a coach for three little girls in this church, Lizzie Kaiser, Gigi Smith, and my daughter Addie. And when we drive to practice on Fridays, I have them think of any lady in the church they want to call, spontaneous, no preparation. So far, we've called four ladies, spontaneous and I say to those ladies, you know, the car talks or whatever, the phone talks through the car speakers. So I just said, uh, yesterday we did this, or Friday. I said, hey, this is uh, Pastor Jordan. I've got three girls with me here in the car. And they picked you as somebody to spontaneously call just to share with them for a second, maybe a minute or two, um, Anything from your walk with the Lord, your quiet time this morning, something God's teaching you, something you're praying about, oh, it's been amazing. And you might be next. So you can go ahead and start thinking about what you might want to say. Do you know what those subsequent conversations sound like after we hang up? I wish everybody could hear what these little girls say about what those ladies said. It's doing something really good to the fiber of their soul to hear you talk about Jesus. And you know, if you're one of those ladies even, that when you hear other sisters who've walked with Jesus longer than you talk to you about what God's teaching them, it does something so good to the fiber of your soul. Young ladies, Little girls, listen to Pastor Jordan. If you want to become more like Jesus, watch the older ladies in this church. Listen to them. But I said a moment ago, the weight is not on the younger ladies. It's on the older ladies, sisters in the Lord. Look for them. Open your eyes. They're crawling all over the place here. And you are already equipped to be pouring into them the beauty of God's word and the truth of Christ. One of Satan's favorite lies is you don't know how to disciple anybody. Are you walking with Jesus? You know how to disciple people. Discipleship is just one follower of Jesus helping another follower of Jesus be a better follower of Jesus. That's it. You can do that and you're already equipped to do that. Older ladies are called in verse three to teach good things. What should you teach them? I'm glad you asked. You should teach them first, if they're married, verse 4, love their husband. The text literally says, so that the young women will love their husbands and children. 
One powerful, very practical effect of belonging to a local church is that your marriage should get better over time. Sisters, I hope, I actually know you have done this, though I don't know any of the content of this just because you know each other. But I sure hope, along with your other pastors, that you've had lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of talks with other sisters in this church that the pastors and the men do not know anything about. If you're not having those talks, please have those talks. And I hope that some of those talks have included one sister in this congregation telling another sister in this congregation, go home and love your man. That's Bible. Ladies, teach the ladies how to love their husband. Tell them to do that. The Bible literally says that I'm supposed to tell you for you to tell others to do that. Verse 1 gives me the command, and now I'm doing verse 4. So go do that. But also tell them to love their children. Do you see the first two relationships are in the home, spouse and children, this doesn't mean if you're not married, it doesn't apply to you. But for those who are married with children, it's so good and so practical. Just like marriages should improve for Christians who are in a church for a long time, so also kids. I wonder if this is true for you. If you grow up in a church, you ought to experience more love than kids who don't. Don't get me wrong. This comes with the need for a little bit of precision, so follow me carefully. It's not that we want anyone to go without love. All kids should be nurtured in a safe, loving environment. But church kids ought to sometimes pick up on and hear things that non-church kids don't hear and can't pick up on. Let me give you an example. Mom says to her daughter, little Susie, I was talking to Miss Mary after church today and I was telling her how sad I am about how frustrated I got with you this morning and how that happens more often than I would like to admit. I was telling Miss Mary how little things annoy me way too much and I make a big deal out of a little thing. And Susie, I need to tell you that the Lord really used Miss Mary today to help me. She said a few things, but she prayed for me right then and right there, and she prayed for you. I'm so glad God gave our family to a good church that helps mommy love you with God's love. That's what's happening in verse four. Older women, are telling younger women, here's how you love your kids. Here's how you love your husband. Do that. Verse five is be sensible. This is the only virtue that must be so important to God that he says it in all the relationships. He just said it about older men. He's saying it now for older women to teach to younger women. It's in verse two, verse five, verse six. Be sensible, old, young, male, female, Hearing and believing God's truth proclaimed to you, verse 1, should make us sensible. ESV says self-controlled. This means that mommy is not unreasonable or applying harsh punishments that don't fit the crime. This sensibility shows up. Older women helping younger women, this sensibility shows up in mom being the safest place on planet Earth for her children to share their heart. Is that you? Don't you want that to be you? Older sisters can help you become the safest place on earth for people close to you to share their heart. That's sensibility. Older women are the primary ones that God intends to use to teach these things. Verse five is to be pure. This is personal holiness. Her lifestyle in verse four is being beautified with the beauty of Christ, the way she carries herself is pure. Number five is in verse five, 
to be a worker at home. This one has been oft abused and taken out of context. Just notice that the phrase does not say she cannot work beyond her home. If the Bible prohibits a godly woman from working outside of her home, you have to rip out a lot of other pages of your Bible for that to be true. Proverbs 31 would be an example. This verse does say that her home work should receive her most special attention and care. New International Greek Testament commentary renders the phrase, worker at home, busy at home. That means the place that occupies her mental energy most and her effort is to make her dwelling marked by the virtues that only a godly woman can bring. Go look at a college guy's dorm room and you will quickly understand that it lacks the sweetness of a godly sister. It's not about the quality or arrangement of your furniture. It's about the loving spiritual comfort and nurture that others find within the walls of her abode. She has a touch on her home that makes it a nursery for heaven. And then that ties to number six, verse five, be kind. Older women teach the younger women to be kind. This is a quality that attracts others to her. There's all kind of movies, reality shows, documentaries that are literally called things like mean girls. And do you know that all little girls are going to gravitate to be mean people unless somebody teaches them that that's not God honoring? Who's going to teach them? You are. What is kindness? It's a quality that attracts other people to you, not away from you. Everybody wants a soft pillow on which to lay their weary head. This young sister's life is supposed to be that. She's an easy to approach person because she knows that other, because others know that they will be met by the grace of kindness when they come to her. Older women teach the younger women to have that gravitational, pull, that gravitational pull that only Christian kindness can merit. Finally, number seven, verse five, be subject to their own husbands. Like many wonderful qualities of true godliness, this virtue is very much under attack today. The world is vehemently positing that the Bible and the church are trying to keep women down, always telling married ladies, subject yourself, submit yourself, be subject to your own husband. Two things I want to say about that briefly. Number one, God said it, not the church. That's clearly what God instructs. If you don't want to submit to your husband, you don't want to be subject to your own husband, then your fight's not with the church, your fight's with God. Number two, what I want to say is positively, when a woman embraces the biblical subjection, biblical submission to a godly husband, she and he flourish in ways that they otherwise could not if she's unwilling to be subject to her husband. Many women of our age are buying the lie of feminism and they're wondering at the same time, where are all the good men? You wanna know where all the good men are? They're at home with their sweet, godly, loving wife who's making her home a nursery for heaven. And those women at home with those men never even have the question occur to them where all the godly men are. If you ask her where are all the good men, she would just take out her phone and show you her screensaver of him kissing her on the cheek. This paragraph is not putting anybody down. It's showing us how to flourish in God's wonderful world and relationships in the church. And it has a lot to do with good biblical ecclesiology. Don't we all agree? Ecclesiology, that's the doctrine of the church. What does this have to do with the doctrine of the church? I'm glad you asked. This book literally calls for male-only pastors and elders. We believe, that's what the Bible teaches, only men are eligible to be pastors. That truth, it is true, 
might inadvertently lead young women to think they have no place in the church or that all that doctrine stuff, serious theology, that's only for the young guys and the older guys and maybe especially only the pastors. No, older women who've been saturated in Christ, nourished on the truth of God's word, verse one, sound doctrine systematic theology, biblical theology. Older women who have that in their veins, even through men preaching it to them, are divinely suited to show younger women the ropes of how they can live a truth-saturated life right now. If any young person says, oh, I'm not interested in all that serious theology stuff, the older women should be the first ones to say, oh, but you should be. If this passage takes deep root in a local church, what would happen? Now, I want to say something that sounds counterintuitive. If this passage takes deep root in a local church, what would happen? The older women would eventually become the least godly generation. Do you see how that works? As the older women deposit into the younger sisters the riches of Christ, who because of the older women's discipleship soon go far beyond where those older women have been able to reach then they rinse and repeat the same pattern. Soon enough, these younger generations so far surpass the older generations that go on to glory that these older women of today soon become the least godly generation in the church. Not because everybody else doesn't care about Jesus, but because everybody else is excelling them because of their discipleship to them. How beautiful. What about younger men? Younger men, oh, young guys, oh, how my heart just burns for you. True saturated living for younger men is in verses six to eight. And just like we could say, the reason a lot of young ladies in churches are so little like Jesus is because the older ladies in churches are so little like Jesus. We could say the same thing about young men. If the young men in this church are so little like Jesus, I believe the older men need to look in the mirror Verse six to eight tells us about truth-saturated living for young men. They are first, verse six, to be sensible. That's the word that I said repeats in verse two, five, and six. I've already explained what that means, but just to say it to the brothers again, you're not to flex your muscles all the time. Show how big and bad you are. You're to be sensible, you're to think, you're to pray, you're to ponder, you're to wait, you're to reason, you're to look for other perspectives. You're not to be so two-dimensional. Everything's not black and white. Yes, there are binary categories. Some things are right, some things are wrong, but so much of a godly life requires biblical wisdom, a lot of prayer, seeking counsel, talk to older men, be sensible. Guys, I'm literally obeying verse one right now when I'm talking to you. Number two, verse six, be an example of good deeds. While a lot of young guys want to sit around and point fingers at others who do all the wrong stuff or maybe debate endlessly all the what ifs, godly young men are busy getting things done. Young men, you right now are called by God to be an example of good deeds. That's verse six. Are you an example of that? Quote, in all things. Are you lazy? Are you irresponsible? Do you show up on time? Can your word be counted upon? God is calling you now to that joy-filled lifestyle while an entire generation of your peers is drifting toward hell. Swim upstream. Be a good example of what a godly life looks like now. The most godly man who ever lived was a young single man named Jesus. Number three, verse six, with purity and doctrine, be dignified. The ESV says, in your teaching, 
show integrity. This could be to Titus, but it's probably to the young men. This requires getting your beliefs from the Bible, not from your own brain. We say around here a lot, we don't care what you think. Better news, we don't care what we think. What does God think? Young men, put your feet on the rock of God's word. If you hadn't read, pick a book of the Bible, go read it. It'll take you about two hours to read the longest ones at rapid speed. Get your mind and heart in God's word so that you can be pure in doctrine, dignified. This is the kind of godly young man who strives for his whole life to match what he knows the scriptures teach. He sees a gap between where he is today and where God calls him to be in terms of his practical obedience, but he's striving to close the gap and make it as small as possible. He's seeking out older men. How did you grow in this way? How do I overcome this sin? How do I get free from this temptation? If you can quote entire seasons of sitcoms, but you can't find the book of Zephaniah, you need a lot less godless TV and a lot more of God's truth. Pure in doctrine. Now, get to know the God of the Bible more than you know any other person in the universe. What's he like? What's his name? What does his son show us about his character? What has he accomplished in redemption? What is true of you now if you're in Christ? What does God say about your identity? Pure in doctrine, dignified. Verse seven is number four, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. Would anyone, verse seven, I need you young men, listen please with all your might. Would anyone who hears you talk be able to say that your words betray your profession of faith? If you call yourself a Christian, is there anybody who would say there's zero chance he's a Christian? Is your mouth full of what Ephesians 4 calls unwholesome talk? Or does your speech, Colossians 4, give grace to people who hear you? God's calling you right now to be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. It doesn't mean people won't say bad things about you. They may lie. They may say things about you that are not true. But if investigated, it would not be able to stand because you're sound in your speech, which is beyond reproach. But do you see there's a reason? There's another so that. So that they will have nothing bad to say but notice in verse 8, it doesn't say about you. What does it say? About us. Live this way, young men, so that they will not have anything bad to say about us. The purpose statement in verse 8 reminds us that what one person in the church does reflects on the entire congregation. We've all heard our grandmas and granddads say, you better remember whose name you have. We've all heard people who refuse to come to churches. Why? Because all those hypocrites who go down there. Is there anything about the lives, about our lives, that is giving other people a legitimate reason to discredit the glorious gospel we believe and the Savior we love? Young men, you must have a special propensity to this because God says it squarely to you. Finally, verses 9 and 10, we've talked about older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and now what a strange category. Slaves. Truth-saturated living for slaves. Look at verses 9 and 10. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Why would God include this category? Well, to be clear, the New Testament does not endorse slavery. It does routinely give instructions to Christians who were enslaved. When I say routinely, I mean a big chunk of Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, 1 Timothy 6, and 1 Peter 2. God says a lot to slaves. The New Testament writers, one commentary says, encouraged Christian slaves to serve their masters obediently whether or not the master was a Christian. That's irrelevant. The New Testament says serve them obediently. So in verse 9, Paul's applying God's standard to the heart of slaves, not just to their actions, 
to their heart. I know that because he's telling them to subject themselves, verse 9, in everything. He's telling them not to argue but to please, honor, or obey, however you want to translate that word. Several commentaries suggested that Christian slaves in Crete may have been trying to use their newfound faith in Jesus as an excuse to no longer obediently obey their masters. If that's the case, they were actually right about their equal status in God's sight, but they were wrong about how to honor God within the boundaries of their human relationships. Apparently, some of these people, these slaves, were argumentative. So Paul says, teach them not to be that. Apparently, some, maybe most, maybe all of them were pilfering. Do you know what that word means? Stealing, taking things that were not theirs. Their master had a lot of money. Their master had a lot of stuff. The master put them in charge of the money and the stuff. They were shaving some of it off the top. It seems that these slaves in Crete were using their Christian faith as an excuse to justify sinful behavior. But do you see the purpose? Why should a slave not be argumentative? Why should he be obedient to his master? So that, verse 10 they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Showing all good faith, it says. This is the beauty of faithfulness in somebody's life and actions. Even when nobody else is watching, even when your master may be heavy-handed, Paul's calling these slaves to be faithful, to be trustworthy, even when they're surrounded by a culture of people who were told the island of Crete was full of lazy, drunk, evil people. The slaves were probably notorious for that. And Paul, through Titus, is telling them, do not be unfaithful. Adorn the doctrine of God. Let your life show that God's truth is solid. Christians, don't pilfer from your bosses. Don't be lazy at work. Don't steal time from their clock. Don't take what is not yours. But the ultimate reason that Paul urges, that's verse 6, it applies to verses 9 and 10, urge, that's a command, urge bond slaves to be faithful and trustworthy in everything is in verse 10, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. That's so similar to the purpose God gave in verse 5 to the young ladies, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. I know that you've been listening for a long time. I hope you can already anticipate what I'm about to say as I start saying it. Ultimately, what's at stake in all this way of living under a truth-saturated pattern of life is not our reputation, it's his. If we belong to him, we should live in such a way that adorns the doctrine of God, who is our savior in every way. His name, his honor, his reputation is at stake. That's the big deal. How did these people become enslaved? Well, it wasn't like American shadow slavery. It wasn't the Middle Passage. It was not ethnically or educationally based enslavement like that which was perpetrated on this soil. Some of these slaves were socioeconomically very well off, extremely educated. Slavery was a protected class in civil law in the Roman Empire. But the military conquest of Rome produced a ton of prisoners of war. And those people were subsequently enslaved. And one commentary said, unlike the American institution of slavery in the 18th and 19th centuries, slavery in the ancient world was not racially restricted, nor did it apply primarily to uneducated or socially deprived persons. Many slaves were well-educated, skilled individuals, therefore contributing greatly to the social and economic fabric of society. Imagine this. Imagine you're one of those people. You're a businessman, you're a teacher, you're a store manager, and now, because of political shifts and conquest and war, you find yourself enslaved on the island of Crete. What Paul wants these slaves to know is they have an opportunity right now 
to display the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ more than they did when they were free. The commentary explains it better than I could put it. Especially noteworthy is the fact that the exemplary behavior of these at the lowest level of society, slaves, has the effect of making attractive, adorning the gospel. Surely, the gospel's transforming power in the lives of those who had every reason to be bitter would stand out more clearly and more brightly than in those who lived in freedom and dignity unknown to slaves. Do you see that this passage is saying God is actually in charge of your station in life and if your master's not demanding you to sin, obey him. Don't argue with him. Why? Don't steal from him. Why? Because you have what the world would say is every justification to run your mouth and every justification to take a little extra because he's skimping on your wages. And the whole world would say, you're right, do it. But look what you have that nobody else has. You have an opportunity to show that Jesus is more precious to you than all the world. And you can adorn the doctrine of God. You can show the greatness of the Savior. And, 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 if God commands slaves to live that way, nobody's got an excuse. Nobody. Everybody has to be required to honor Jesus in everything if God's requiring it of them. You see how this works. So I close here. For the sake of your soul, if you're not yet saved, if you're headed for hell, if you're in need of sins forgiven and a forever love relationship with Jesus, God is calling his children to live truth saturated lives and ultimately that age old excuse all those Christians are just hypocrites so I don't want to become one of them myself is going to be a very sorrowful and sad argument when it comes judgment day we have been hypocritical we actually have not been consistent with what we say we believe we regret that we're sorry for that. We wish the gap was smaller, like I said to the young men, between what we know is true and how we live, but we're trying, so help us God, to close that gap. And God's given us older brothers and sisters to help us, and we're trying. But please don't let our inconsistency and hypocrisy keep you from a love relationship with the king of the universe. The gospel is true. The blood of the risen Jesus is the only hope for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Even if all of his people sinfully compromise in our behavior, that is still true. You still need Jesus. But for any of you who are Christian, sorry, let me say that this way. For any of you who are not Christians, not Christians, we are sorry for all the ways we have not lived faithfully for Christ. We are sorry for all the ways we've added excuses for why you don't want to be a Christian yourself. And on behalf of us all, I'm saying, please forgive us. And for Christ's sake, please do not reflect onto him the unfaithfulness you've seen in us. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. He is worth living for in whatever situation or station of life you find yourself in because he's the one that placed you there. Jesus gave his whole heart and his entire life for your salvation. So we beg you, give your whole heart and your whole life to Jesus right now. Now to Christians. We have a job to do. Men, boys, women, girls. And all who God has placed under any authority, provided they're not requiring us to sin, take note. You have been made who you are. 
You have been placed where you are by God because he wants to use you to show those around you the beauty and sufficiency of Jesus. Again, if those in authority above you are trying to lead you into sin, don't obey them. But in every other situation, the greatness and gospel of Jesus in the eyes of others has been entrusted to us. Oh, may God empower us to live in a way that's fitting for sound doctrine. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for your word and thank you for your gospel truth. We pray that you would cause us to live in light of the truth of the gospel and to follow Jesus with all of our heart. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.